this is a wonderful study on the learning about the character of God. And what we're going to do first is just turn on this uh, share screen um, PowerPoint. And so you can see the slides. Hopefully you can see those slides as well. Okay. So tonight we want to look at learning about the character of God and its application for us today. And really we want to split the classes up there's two classes, and the first class is really uh, more of the, the beginning fundamental exercise of learning about the character of God. And really, you'll find that this is a lifetime challenge. It's not a one class, but hopefully it will um, give us some tools that we can then use in our own personal study to continue to build upon the theme. Next week, we want to apply or see how we can apply that character, its application for us today. And what we will find is when we talk about God's character, we're going to find that that has a lot to do with the subject of his name. And we'll be going through that this evening as well. Okay, let me just, uh, when we go to Psalm 22, we see that David had this in his mind when he said, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, will I praise thee? There was something about God's name that he wanted to declare to others to be able to know about, about God's name, his glory, his character. We often talk about that, and we'd like to look at that this evening and, and, and look at some principles based on that. But we want to say that it's not just a name like we have a name. Like my name here tonight is Matt, and you can have a Bob or a Fred or a Mike, and God's name is none of those. We will find that in his name, it's all about uh, descriptive qualities, about aspects of his character. And to declare his name to his brethren is to find out about those aspects or those attributes of God's character and then pass that message on to others so that they in turn can do the same. You might think of in the Olivet Prophecy in Matthew 24 verses 4 to 5 where it says, Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. In fact, in the Olivet Prophecy, you'll see that term deceiving many come up a number of times. It's a very important theme, and in the last days, we're being told that we have to really watch that we are not deceived, because there are many that are going to come in this so-called name. In fact, in Matthew 7, verses 15 to 20, we're told, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits, you shall know them. And so we see the importance about of knowing the name and knowing the fruits. There's something important in that that we would like to look at this evening. And when we just go back and think about God's plan and purpose with this earth, we have this statement that many of us are familiar with from Numbers 14 and 21. And it really is a divine statement. It's, it's in the King James here. It's written as, but truly I live. But in the Hebrew, it's really, truly I live. All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And of course, those concepts are picked up by the prophets in Isaiah 45 and 18. And in Habakkuk 2 verse 14. Very similar themes are found in those verses as well. But there's something about all the earth one day going to be filled with the glory of the Lord. Well, how can that happen? And what is going to, to happen to accomplish that? Well, back at the very beginning of our Bibles in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, we read, And God blessed them, and this is speaking of Adam and Eve, and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish 
And that word replenish is the same as the word filled that we saw at the on the previous slide, to fill the earth with God's glory. This is to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And when we look at this theme and, and continue looking at that, we see that there's a purpose that God had with man, that he first had a creation that he created and populated this earth. But then he created man with the, these instructions as we see on the screen. And this is the divine purpose would be to be fruitful, multiply, replenish, subdue, and have dominion. There's really five attributes there that God wants us to learn about. That he wants us to have dominion over the works of creation by showing forth God's character. And so David asked in Psalm 8, verse 5, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Why did God think of us in this plan and purpose? And this is what we want to look at this evening. And so right back at the, at the start, in Genesis 3, verse 15, we read of what we call sometimes the fall of mankind. It's when sin and death entered into the world. And there was a statement made as a prophecy, really, in Genesis 3, verse 15, which is sometimes referred to as the Edenic Covenant or the Edenic Covenant. And it says, I will put enmity or strife between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his head, his heel, excuse me. And what we learn is there's a battle that is going to ensue here between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the seed of the serpent, we can find throughout the scripture and the seed of the woman as depicted as two seeds that are in constant battle or in constant conflict. We see it in many different themes throughout the Bible. And this is really where I hope that you, you, can, you can put this into your mind. And when you do your readings and you come across some of these themes, you'll maybe... Uh, think about the, the general theme of the, um, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and this conflict that we see in Genesis 3. There's places in the Bible when we read of two ways or two women, two sons, two trees, two mountains, two houses, two masters, two cities, even two towers. It's a conflict we see between spirit and flesh, divine versus human, good versus evil. Light versus darkness, righteousness versus sin, wise versus the foolish, holy versus unholy. And this theme is continuous throughout scripture. In fact, right at the beginning, and I've color coded this in red and green so we can see the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent color coded to the red. And so from Adam, we see the two Boys that were born originally, Cain and Abel, of course, Abel in the middle there uh, was slain. He was replaced with uh, Seth that we see on the right and a genealogy that continues through that line all the way down through Noah, all the way down to Shem. And Shem is going to be a very important word for our subject tonight because Shem in Hebrew is the word for name. And we're going to explore that a little further as we go through. But what I wanted to show with this slide just initially is um, we see this battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And, and when you start down around the names of uh, Mahujael and Methusael and Lamech, and you start seeing almost a mirror image of these names on the right side of Mehahalaleel and Jared and Enoch and Methuselah and Lamech, and it's almost like there's a competition with the names at this time between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent as well. And it's interesting when you follow this, because there is certainly a battle that's going down that can be followed throughout scripture. And what we want to bring out here is, is to understand is that in the Bible, names are very important. They're different than our English names, where we just think of a Bob, Steve, Fred, like I mentioned before, as a name for somebody. But in scripture, in Hebrew, a divinely inspired record alone makes it important, but more so names imply character, reputation, and function. Names are transliterated, such as the word Noah, coming from the Hebrew Noach, 
The same word is translated in English as comfort. The translation converts the name into a way for us to identify the meaning. The key here is the nature and character of God are found in his names, which can unfortunately be lost in some translations. So we have to do a little bit of research on these names sometimes. These biblical names can not only give us an idea of a person's character, but a list of names can provide information about a character of a family line or a prophecy regarding, regarding the family line. If we just look at an example we have here on the screen here in green, we see the names Adam all the way down to Seth, that what we call the seed of the woman um, genealogy. And the names are to the right of what those mean. We don't have to go through every name here, but when you put that all together, what you see, it could make a saying such as this. It could make a saying such as seen as the bottom. Man has been appointed mortality and sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching his death shall bring the despairing rest or comfort through his name. Now, you might think that's a coincidence. I don't think it is. And I think you can do that with many spots in scripture with a little bit of work to see how God worked with the names. But that aside, we want to look at really how this works and how these two seeds have been developed throughout scripture and the importance of this name. So right back again in the beginning at Genesis chapter four, the chapter about Cain and Abel, we find that after um, Abel has been slain by his brother and Seth has replaced him, at the end of the chapter in Genesis 4, verse 26, we have this interesting phrase that appears for the first time in scripture. Then began men to call upon the name or the Shem of the Lord. This is that word in Hebrew, Shem, which we have in the English Old Testament as name. But what's interesting is this is the first time that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And what exactly does that mean to call upon the name of the Lord? Does it mean that they just said, oh, and called out some name that we haven't yet defined yet? Did they say God, Lord, Yahweh? Or is there something else that was mentioned here or meant by the calling on the name? See, what's interesting here is in Hebrew, that word began means to bore or to wound. And so what we have and can translate this as is in two other versions at the bottom here, we have at that time they were pierced to call out in the name of Yahweh. Or in Young's literal translation, we have then a beginning was made of preaching in the name of Jehovah. And it's very interesting that we get this little twist in here. And what we see in this development of the, of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is that there was a persecution starting in these early days. But that those that were trying to live up and call on the character of the Lord were being persecuted in so doing. So we see this seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent depicted on this slide in front of us, carrying throughout scripture. And we now come to Genesis chapter six in verse two, where we read that the genealogies are now starting to mix for the first time between the sons of God or the seed of the woman, and the daughters of men, or the seed of the serpent. We read in verse 2 that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, that they were good. And they took of these women, it says. It's the same word that we get from that taking of the tree of life that we were told not to take from back in Genesis 3, verse 22. It's the same concept that we are... Somebody is touching something that, or taking something that they're not supposed to take. But look at what the result was. This is what we want to key in on, is that the result was in the text that says in verse 4, that the same began mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. Or in other words, men of the name. Men of Hashem, as it is in Hebrew. You see, they wanted to make a name for themselves. This group of, of, of individuals um, rose above the rest and, and put themselves ahead of the rest and became men of renown. When we come to Numbers chapter 16, if you have your Bibles open, please just turn to Numbers chapter 16 where we're going to see this term again. And we can really paint the picture 
of what we have here, of these men that are putting on this name. It's in Numbers chapter 16 and at verse 2. And this is in the subject of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, who rose up against Moses. It says in verse 2 that they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel. 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of Hashem, men of renown. And here are, here are the type of individuals that raise up out of disobedience, out of rebellion. This is really what we want to get out of this, is that the mixing was not to be, and it was a rebellion. And rebellion always leads, we'll see, to pride and arrogance and, and others being persecuted that are trying to continue to live and call on the name of the Lord. So this theme continues throughout scripture, and, and uh, one, one um, type I like to see and watch through scripture is with the two towers. We get to Genesis 11, where these men of renown, by chapter 11, have now grown into these men who now try to build a tower unto the Lord, we're told. And in verse 8, it says, the name of it is called Babel, because the Lord did there confound or confuse the language of all the earth. So while these men of renown or, or men of Hashem, those that were trying to make a name for themselves, we see that all through Genesis 11, that they were making a name for themselves. This is to be contrasted or compared with the, the Lord God, who we see on the right side here. It says, the Shem or the name of Yahweh is a strong tower. And so we can follow that theme throughout scripture. And we see that God is a strong tower to those that put his trust in them. But there's another group that put their trust in, in self and in flesh. And there's a competition that ensues all throughout scripture as a result. Here's what Brother John Martin says in his book on Noah, Preacher of Righteousness, page 10, concerning this Shem. And I thought it was interesting to bring forward here on men of renown. He says, here is a curious combination of Hebrew words. The word for men being the word Enosh, which basically indicates weak mortal man, whilst the word renown is the Hebrew word Shem, which means name. Genesis 4.26 provides a comparison for when Enos, one of the sons of Seth, was born, then men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Now in Noah's day, there was a race of people who, although they were giants, held in awe by their contemporaries, were really weak mortal men who had disgraced the name, which originally some of them had called upon. They had a name or a Shem that they lived, but were dead. That's Revelations 3 and 1 that he's quoting from there. And so let's, let's move on now and, and explore this, this Shem or this character a little further. As we mentioned in the Hebrew, the word is Shem. In Greek, however, it's the word onoma as we see on the, on the screen here on the right. You see our English word name right underneath it. And you can see that our word name came from the Greek or a Latin-based derivative, which you see right in the word itself. But in the dictionary at the bottom here, which is, which is the ancient Hebrew lexicon of the Bible, we have that it detects or it depicts the breath, the wind or breath of someone or something is its character. And just at the very bottom here, it says, the breath of a man is character. What makes one what he is? The name of an individual is more than an identifier, but descriptive of his character or breath. And, and, and you can follow this concept through on your own time too, and you'll find these jump out of in scripture. And I'm just um, highlighting a, a few to get us started here, but here is uh, one in Ecclesiastes 7 and 1. And it says, a good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of one's birth. Now, have you ever given that any thought, my dear brothers and sisters? How it, how it can be in the mind of God that the day of our death can be considered um, uh, better than the day of one's birth. And it can only be in this context where after we've had a lifetime of challenges and trials that God brings upon us, and we, and we learn through those trials and that beautiful chastisement from the Lord, 
to shape us and mold us into his character. That it could be said of us in our deaths that he was a wonderful person, someone who followed after the Lord and tried to demonstrate that. And that, I think, is what the verse is, is getting across here. And in, in um, the book of Nehemiah, he lived a life of persecution, as we know, from those around him that looked down upon him. And we see the, the opposite than a good name here, where it says, Therefore was he hired that I should be afraid and do so and sin, and that they might have matter for an evil report, that they might reproach me. So this is Nehemiah talking about uh, two adversaries of the day, uh, Sanballat and Tobiah, that were persecuting him. And they brought this evil report. And that's opposite than a good name. It's In the Hebrew, it's this evil Shem. And it's terrible for people to bring that against us. But as long as we're trying to develop God's character, uh, we have nothing to fear. Now, here's another one with the story of Nabal and Abigail. And I'm just broad brushing these quickly for time's sake, um, just to point these out. But, but the name, the Shem of the man was Nabal or Nabal. And the name or the Shem of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding. And of a beautiful countenance. But the man was churlish and evil in his doings. And he was of the house of Caleb. And it's a really, I like this one to show the point here that we have this opposite here. We know the story. Uh, for those that know the story, I shouldn't assume. But uh, it's a story where, where Nabal was, was really mean to the men of David and wouldn't feed them when they were on the run. And held his goods to himself. But Abigail, in her wisdom, went and fed the men. And... Uh, and her name, Abigail, my father is joy. And Nabal, his name actually means fool or foolish. And it tells you in the text, but the man was churlish and he was evil in his doings. And he was out of the house of Caleb. And there's actually another little twist there to see in that verse there too with that name Caleb. Caleb is a beautiful scriptural name in Hebrew. Um, the word is a compound of two Hebrew words, kol, which means all or a whole, and love, which means love or heart. And so what you have in the word Caleb is it means wholehearted. And, and that's what the twist is here is because we don't see that in the foolish man Nabal. And that's what we, we do when we look at these episodes to see that character coming out and what it means. Let's explore um, this name a little further. And at this point, we want to look at Exodus chapter 3 verses 13 to 15, where God now gives his name in more of a descriptor to Moses. Well, we read there, and Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say unto me, What is his name? What is his Shem? What is his character? What is his character attributes? How are we going to know it's God as opposed to another God? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am have sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob have sent me unto you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial Unto all generations. Now just look at this screen very closely once again. Because I want to just bring out a little highlight here. We notice again at the top section. That Moses is asking God. What is your name? What is your character? But God doesn't just give one answer. He gives what you could say is, is almost two different answers. Or broken up into two parts. The first part as he says is that his name is. I am that I am. Or he reiterate, reiterates it and shortens it by saying I am. That's the first part. But notice here he says, God said, moreover, unto Moses. This additional section, this additional point, he says, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, Yahweh Elohim of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, have sent me unto you. This is my Shem. This is my name forever. This is my memorial unto all generations. And sometimes we, we miss uh, mentioning that and we just kind of focus on God's name as if, like I said earlier, like a Bob, Steve or a Fred. 
you know, and we don't look at what the purpose is behind that name. And God wants us to home in on the fact that his name is more than just a name, but it's a purpose. And not only is it just a purpose, it's a purpose that he has had, he's saying to Moses, with your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of, of Jacob, that he's been a God that's been a God to them as well. He's an eternal, almighty God. But do we believe this? Do we understand this? This is my name, Ea and Yahweh. Well, what is this? We don't want to get into a deep grammar lesson here at all. We just want to skim through this very, very uh, briefly. But I do want to make this point so that we do understand where God's name comes from in the Hebrew. Because it's important to understand how it works. This verb here, Haya, is... Um, translated, as you see in the first, second, and third persons below, as this. Ea means I exist, or I am. Tia means you exist, or you are. And Yia means he exists, or he is. And the verses to the right there are where you can find in the text those exact translations. But what I want to bring out here is that this Ea, Asher, Ea, this phrase that God defines himself as, as his name, has, a, has multiple dimensions to it. And sometimes we just say, you know, I will be a multitude or something like that. But it could be said as, I will exist because I will exist. Or you could say, I exist because I exist. Or you might like, I am who I am. Or I will be who I will be. Or I am that which exists. And all of these imply an incompleted action. See, God isn't done yet. He has a purpose with you and he has a purpose with me and he has a purpose with this earth and those that would turn to him and that his purpose is calling out a people for his name, for his character and purpose. And we'll see that as we go through. So this verb, Haya, as we see in the third person here at the bottom, is where we get the one that we use mostly and we would call God Yahweh or Yiweh. Um, which means actually he exists or he is. So when we say God's name Yahweh, we're actually saying he exists or he is. And you can see that in Exodus 4 verse 1 used in that capacity. So again, Yahweh Elohim, he will exist in mighty ones. He exists in mighty ones. He will be mighty ones or he is that which exists in mighty ones. And we think of the declaration of the Lord Jesus Christ who carried on the name of his father. And he said in Revelation 1 verse 8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. And we want to make the point here that when we look at these, this subject, the focus should not be on how the name is pronounced, but on what it means. You know, so many discussions have come up on this is how we should say the name. And it scared people off to some degree of maybe I shouldn't say it that way. Even in Jewish circles, um, there's a great reverence for the name of God. And sometimes you'll see in the writings with Jews that they'll use a dash for some of the letters in between. Like in God, they'll put like G-D because of a reverence for his name. But it's important to realize that we're, we speak English, we do the best job we can, but if we just call God by a name and we don't actually realize that there's a purpose to that name, then we really have just turned his name into a Bob, Fred, or a Mike. And that's what, not, what, doesn't, what God wants of us. He wants us to understand the meaning of his name and the meaning of the multiple characteristics that God has. And when we explore the various names of God in scripture, we can spend a class on each of these names and it's a wonderful study to do so. But just looking at the multiple um, names of God as we have on the screen here, I'm just gonna home in on a few of them. But down at the bottom there, about halfway in that bottom column, you have one called Yahweh Rapha. See, that's Yahweh heals or Yahweh the healer. Let's just turn to that one just yet. I want to want to show how God's name works in these characteristics as well. It's in Exodus 15, and it's at, at verse 26. And you could try to discover these yourself if you're if you're so inclined and pull these out of Scripture. But it's quite a fun study. Exodus 15, verse 26 reads, 
and said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians. For I am Yahweh Rapha. I am Yahweh that healeth thee. See, God isn't just a single dynamic person or deity. Our father has multiple attributes, loving attributes that he is describing to us. And sometimes we can pray to him using these attributes. If we want to pray to God and, and, and think about his, his healing attributes, we need healing in our lives. We can petition him using this name. We can petition him with just the name Lord or the name God as well. But these are the many different names of God in scripture. And hopefully we can explore more of these as we go through. At this point in Exodus 6, I'd like to make in Exodus 6 verse 3. Sometimes we get to this verse where it says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by, by my name, Yahweh, was I not known to them? And you'll notice here that I have this with a question mark because I believe this is how it should be in the original. And I think it gives a, a greater understanding to uh, this section of scripture, which I'd like to explain now. You see, sometimes we think that this is verse is saying that God first appeared to them as God Almighty, but his name Yahweh or he who will be was not declared to them. But that's not what it says. It says that my name was not known to them. You'll see that God's name Yahweh is used way before Exodus 6 verse 3. You'll see it in Genesis in the early chapters. You'll see even Abraham building an altar to the name of Yahweh. So it's definite that the name was known. But it wasn't known or experienced in the way of an understanding of, his, of this particular characteristic. That we saw in that memorial name. That God has been a father to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And this is what God wants to demonstrate now to, to Israel and to us. He wants to show them and he wants to show us that he is a God that will and does work with us. See, this word God Almighty here means El Shaddai. That Shad or Shaddai has to do with the breast. It has to do with the Almighty being a nourisher. It almost has this, this mothering aspect the mother side or the goodness side of God and this is how he brings us up with the milk of the word but at some point we need a bit of chastisement in our lives don't we sometimes we can go off off of the of, of the line and so God now re is going to reveal his character in a more definite way to them so that so they Israel and us understand his purpose and so we see in two other translations at the bottom here in the CLV, it says, as to my name, Yahweh, I was not realized by them. In another version, I like the Hebrew version, TS 1998, it says, and by my name, Yahweh, was I not known to them? And so there is scriptural support for this view. And Brother C.C. Walker, in his, um, his booklet on Theophany on page nine, he says, did the patriarchs know the Yahweh name? Does this mean that the name Yahweh had never been known upon earth before God communicated thus by the angel to Moses? He says the divine declaration in Exodus 6 and 3 does not necessarily mean that the name Yahweh was unknown upon earth before the days of Moses, but rather that Yahweh had not manifested himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by that name as he was now about to manifest himself in Israel. The margin of the Revised Version indicates this interpretation and the Septuagint and Vulgate translations also, on which doubtless the margin of the RV is based. Even in the English, we arrive at the same conclusion when we ponder the usage of the verb know. It sometimes signifies much more than the mere acquaintance with a name. And so we can even look at the context here as well. And I've highlighted in blue, but by my name, Yahweh, was I not known to them? And when you look at the context, starting at verse 2 down to verse 8, we see that God is trying to make the point, the very point, that he has been declaring his character and his plan and purpose with them. But maybe it's that we're a little bit daft sometimes. Sometimes we don't pick up on what, what God is trying to show us. 
You see, he says that I am Yahweh. I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. But my name, by my name Yahweh was I not known to them. And he goes through that he's established his covenant. He's also heard the groanings. He's going to bring them from under the burdens of the Egyptians. He's going to redeem you with a stretched out arm and take you to me for a people. I will be to you a God. He reiterates his name again. I am Yahweh your Elohim. I will bring you onto the land. I will give it to you. I am Yahweh. And see the context there is, is what he's squishing his name in, in between the context here is showing us that he has a plan and purpose of redeeming us and taking us out of this world and showing us himself and his character so that we can be like him and demonstrate it to others. You may think back to, uh, I have at the bottom here, does he do this? Yes. If we just think of Genesis 18, verses 27 to 32. Actually, we'll just turn there briefly, um, just to make one other further point here, since we're on it now. In, in Genesis 18, at the very end of that section here, it's interesting because three angels were told, come and meet uh, Abraham, who's sitting at the tent at the beginning of the chapter. Two of those angels disappear and go to Sodom toward the end of the chapter, but one of them remains. And the one that remains goes back and forth with Moses, with uh, Abraham and a discussion on God's character. It goes, and starting at verse 23 of Genesis 18, Abraham drew near and said, will you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? And what he does is he whittles down through a, through a number um, through 50, all the way down to 10, he keeps asking the same question. Lord, you know, trying to figure out the character of God. Are you, are you going to destroy if there's a righteous person here? And what he learns is, of course not. He only whittles down to 10, but the answer can be inferred, of course, that God would go down even if there was one person. He's not willing that any should perish. He's long-suffering that none should perish, but that we all come to an understanding of him. And, and in that uh, that's part of the learning of God's character. Will you, will you, Yahweh, your character, he who will be, will you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? That's not in God's character. And this is a learning stage. See, Moses, Abraham was learning it. Moses is learning it. We too are learning it. What we, we just looked at just real briefly here in, in Exodus 6 was these seven I will statements of Yahweh. And, um, and just examining them, you see these principles in the middle column that are coming out with what God is saying with these I will statements. He's showing a principle of separation. He's showing a, a principle of a change of masters, of redemption, showing his chosen people, a development of these people, that they're brought into the promises and that they're going to receive the inheritance. And on this chart, we can match from the left to the right here. For instance, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And we can find that with us in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17 to 18. That we must come out from among the world and be separate and God will receive us. And with this change of masters, I will rid you out of their bondage. Romans 6 tells us we must move from being servants of sin to being servants of righteousness. I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. This is a redemption in Colossians 1, verse 13 and 14. God has delivered us from the power of darkness. In his son, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. I will take to you, to me. I will take you to me for a people. See, there's a chosen people here. Acts 15 tells us God visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. For his character. I will be to you a God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9 to 10, in times past you were not a not a people, but are now the people of God, a chosen generation. I will bring you into the land, we read in verse 8, which matches Galatians 3, verse 27 to 29, that by baptism into Christ we are made heirs according to the promise. And the seventh is, I will give it you for a, give it you for a heritage. I am Yahweh. And so there's an inheritance to be received. And we see in Colossians 3 verse 24, of the Lord, we will receive the reward of the inheritance.
So there's a wonderful plan and purpose that God is working, that he shows that he is working with his people Israel, and also to those that graft into that name. Now just think about this process, how it worked in the Old Testament, the thinking about in the idea of priesthood. We know in the Bible it says that, that we are striving to become a kingdom of priests. Sometimes we say a king of kings and priests in the kingdom age. But a kingdom of priests matches the priesthood you might, you might think about in the Old Testament. And just consider what the priests in the Old Testament were to do. It says in Numbers chapter 6, which is, which is right after the Aaronic blessing, which describes the character of God. The priests were told on this wise, you shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, the Lord bless thee and keep thee or guard thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And it says, and they, the priests, shall put my name or my Shem upon the children of Israel. And I will bless them. And you wonder what that means. Well, how is it that these priests were told to? And how was it that they were to put that Shem or put that name upon the children of Israel? And how was it that, is it just, they just pass that on somehow? Well, let's just consider some of these verses, which may, may help us a little bit. In, under the law, in the Ten Commandments, in verse 7 of Exodus 20, one we're very familiar with, it says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And there's been much discussion on, on what that means. And I hope after our class this evening, it will give a little bit of another idea of what, what we feel that this, this actually means here. It's not just a matter of us swearing or taking God's name in some falsehood like that, which I, which I believe could be included in this as well. There's no doubt. But there's more to it, is there not? Because what it's saying here is you shall not lift up. That's what the word shall not take. You shall not lift up or represent the character of Yahweh falsely. You see, in the Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 to 9, it says there, lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. Now, that's an interesting little clue there. That if we're, we're, we're poor and we end up stealing, we could end up taking the name of the Lord in vain. It's not just the poor. It, it's just talking about if you're in that situation and that comes to you doing that. If anybody steals, it would be taking the Lord's name in vain. But why? It's because we're lifting up or representing the character of Yahweh falsely to others. You think about with the priests in Exodus 28 verse 12 it says, thou shalt put the two stones upon the shoulders of the ephod for stones of memorial upon the children of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord upon his two shoulders for a memorial. Now just think of that responsibility, my dear friends, my dear brothers and sisters. The bearing of the responsibility, the bearing of the names of your brethren and sisters upon your shoulder as you went and represented them before God as the high priest in the most holy place. You shall not lift up the character of Yahweh falsely. In verse 29, and Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goes in unto the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. You shall not lift up or represent the character of Yahweh falsely. I keep saying that because I, I really want that to, to stick with us. It's, it's something that we have to really think about. And it's, it's something that we all strive to, to live and follow after. And this is why we need an example. We need someone to show us how to do it. Which is what God sent the Lord Jesus Christ exactly to do. And we'll be learning more on that as we go on. We, my dear friends and brothers and sisters, those that are baptized and choose to follow after this and take on the name and call upon the name of the Lord, we are representatives of Yahweh. We take his character, his Shem, and we place it within us. As his representatives, if we go out and we lie or we steal 
or we cheat, etc., we're representing his character falsely. See, we take on this name through baptism, do we not? There's a number of verses here at the bottom. You can follow through in the New Testament if you'd like in your own leisure. You'll see, especially in Acts, a lot of this theme of, of calling on the name and taking on the name. But hopefully when we do our readings and our classes together and read these verses, we'll have a, maybe a, a, a clearer focus on that taking of the name and rep what it represents. But just in Acts chapter 2, we'll just look at uh, just, just one or two here just to make, make the point. But Acts 2 verse 38, we read, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins, and you shall receive the, Holy, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, they were told in, in Acts chapter 2. And again, you follow this all the way through the book of Acts, and you come now to Acts chapter 22, and at verse 16, and it says, And now why tarriest thou? Arise, and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And so, it's a big responsibility, but we have help with the Lord Jesus Christ, who hopefully in our class next week, we're going to look more at. Just some highlights before we get, get to next week's class to think about. Think of these verses here where we're told, for instance, in John 5, verse 43, the Lord Jesus saying that I am come in my father's name. Now, his name, as we see at the top of the slide, Jesus, his name, Yeshua. In Hebrew means Yah saves or Yahweh saves. And he's coming in that saving name. I am come in my father's character. One that saves. We can learn how we can save by following after Jesus' example. John 14 and 9 says, Jesus says unto them, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou, then, show us the Father? See, many have tripped up on that verse, thinking that Jesus was saying that he was God, very God. But he wasn't. He was saying that he came in the exact representation of God's character. And he was showing that to others, and that if we see him and follow his example, it's as if we were looking at the example of the Father. It says, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest, gavest me out of the world, in John 17. He says, I have declared unto them thy name, and I will declare it. And so, we think about Moses. He was another one who was really trying to focus on learning this name. And, and this is why we, we entitled this class, Learning About the Character of the Lord. It's not something that we can say we have full understanding at. If Moses, this meek and mild man, spent so much time trying to learn about God, how much more do we have to learn as well? And see, if you just skim through quickly for time's sake in, in Exodus 32, just the highlights, we see Moses was delayed to come down from the mount. Verse 7, God told Moses that the people have corrupted themselves. In verse 11 to 12, God, Moses tries to understand God's character. There was a learning curve here. He petitioned in verse 13 on behalf of the promises that the Lord would repent of his evil, of the, of the punishment that he was thinking to bring upon the people. But when God told them of what the people were doing, it says Moses' anger waxed hot and he smashed the Ten Commandments. And we see in verse 25 how the people... How we're now naked in sin. And in verse 26, who is on the Lord's side? And 3,000 people did not side with Moses and died and perished. And God says in verse 31 to 34, I will visit their sin. And there's the severity side of God shown here. But he says in chapter 33, verse 12 to Moses, I know thee by name. And Moses found grace. Just like Noah in Genesis 6 found grace with God. Moses found grace with God. And he says to God in verse 13, show me now thy ways. Thou hast found grace. I know thee by name. God knew his character. 
course he knew his name Moses, but he knew his character. He knew the development of Moses. And so he petitioned him, show me thy glory, Lord. And he says, I will make my goodness pass before thee. And of course, a verse we're very familiar with, I sometimes joke about this verse being our eye test because it looks kind of convoluted here. It's because I have the Hebrew on here as well. But when you just look at it, it really does summarize our thoughts for this evening as we bring our thoughts to a close on God's purpose and what he's trying to get across to each and every one of us. And Moses was shown this by the angel of God. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful. That word merciful has to do with the bowels, compassion in the bowels. And gracious, there's compassion again. Long-suffering and abundant in goodness, which means to bow the neck in kindness. And truth, guarding or keeping mercy for thousands. Forgiving iniquity or lifting up the burden or the load of iniquity. And transgression and sin. And that by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. And upon the children's children until the third and the fourth generation. In this last attribute we have in here. Don't, don't forget about this one found in verse 14. It's part of God's character as well. He says, for Yahweh whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. And so this is what we're going to hopefully learn a little bit more of in the example of our Lord Jesus Christ in our, in our class next week. But what it comes down to, my dear brothers and sisters, is that some Hebrew students believe that there's not really any difference in the words listed for God's character here. Merciful, gracious, goodness, long-suffering, forgiving, all of these terms refer to our merciful God. Each word contributes to a complete picture of God's character. For example, merciful, compassionate comes from a root word meaning womb. So in our minds, the picture formed is a mother's tender care of a newborn infant. The word translated mercy or goodness, abounding love or steadfast love, is closely related to the word grace. The term means that God loves forever despite our failings. And so as we end our class with this slide in Psalm 136, you'll see the repetition that the psalmist was trying to instill in our minds that we should give thanks unto Yahweh, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever.